On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On today's Complicated Conversation, we are thrilled to be joined by Lauren Nossett. Lauren is a former professor turned novelist uh, with a PhD in German literature. Her scholarly work has appeared in journals, edited volumes, and a book with Northwestern University Press. She currently lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and her debut novel, The Resemblance, is out today. And we are so excited to talk to you on your publication day. We want to hear a little bit about The Resemblance, but also how you're feeling. Yeah, today. how are you? How This is like the day people dream of. <laughs> It's, it, it. it's incredible. It's surreal. I'm so excited and just to see people posting p- photos of the, the books online and just to know that the story that has existed in my head for the past several years is now out there in the world and people are reading and engaging with it. It's it's incredible and it's it's so wonderful to be with you both today to talk about it. I'm so glad we got to do it today. I'm so thank you for fitting us in. We're really excited. Yeah. So tell us a little, like Kate said, about The Resemblance. So The Resemblance is a campus novel. It also falls into this dark academia genre that is um, so popular right now. It begins with a fatal hit and run on the campus of the University of Georgia. The detective uh, who's first on the scene is the daughter of a University of Georgia professor. And she, because of some things that she herself experienced while she was in college, immediately suspects that Greek life is involved with this death in some way, shape, or form. And she is determined to to connect uh, the two. And so this really brings her into investigating not only campus life, but also specifically the Greek letter organization's on the campus. We've just touched on everything that we want to talk about in that little quick elevator pitch. I mean, everything that we explore constantly on this podcast and then also had so much to talk about with your book. So we put women front and center on this podcast. So of course, we want to start with Marlet. And I'd like to read a little bit about her. And I, I took just little sections because you gave us so much good stuff on, on pages 43 to 45 really early. So I'm not giving anything away. But she says, I'm always a little too impulsive for his liking. No one's sure where I get it from. The reckless, don't think twice, constant need for motion. She talks about her mother there. And she says, my father is a different story. These days, he might be called a helicopter parent, but overprotective is the word that comes to mind. You might think with all the coddling and babying that I'd be a sniveling, trembling mess, incapable of leaving the house. But here's the thing about my father. He was always worried enough for the both of us. He worried so much that I was never afraid of anything. Oh, I mean, and there's so much more in those pages. It's so, I just don't want to read three full pages and, and take up all our time, but there's so much... Um, amazing detail in there about Marlet. So tell us about her, what inspired her character, what challenges you faced writing her, anything about Marlet. 
Yes, so the the story really started with her. I actually heard her voice really clearly. Um, I was just, I think I'd been thinking about wanting to start a new writing project, letting it, letting it mole in my head. And then I um, remember it was late at night and I heard her in this scenario. It initially was the prologue of the novel, but the prologue um, has since changed. And so there's something that happens to her with, I, without giving any spoilers about midway through the book where she's in this very precarious situation. And I just sat down and I wrote that whole scene in her voice. And I, it was just... I heard her voice so clearly. And so she was really fun to, to then take that, that very specific, I think, powerful voice that she had. And then I extended into this, into this larger story. Yeah. Um, and I love that she is impulsive, that she has no fear that that's not me, but it was fun to write from that, from that perspective. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Getting, getting a chance to live vicariously a little bit. You got to take something that you know, root them in, in something yeah. that you know well, but then give them the world, right? yeah. everything you don't have. Right, absolutely. It's the best part of being a, a fiction writer. Yes. Um, so another thing we are obsessed with here is sort of complicated mothers and the mother-daughter relationship. Uh, Marlet's mother is a professor, and we begin this novel in very early on in her office with a standoff that gets interrupted. So again, we, we definitely, we warned you, we want to read some parts because the, the, it's so good. Um, you wrote, my mother's waiting for me to say something, peering at me through her black framed glasses. She does the same thing to her students. I guess she thinks that if she's patient enough, one of them will come up with something brilliant. We stare at each other, me with the resolute stubbornness of an only child, her with the professorial certainty that I'll talk eventually and whatever I say later will be better than if she pushes me now. And I just love that mm. dynamic you're establishing right out of the gate with them. So, and then how her mother has a role in her self-discovery over the course of this novel. So we wanted to hear more about um, why you wanted to write about sort of the, the complicated mother-daughter relationship and, and what you wanted to highlight with this relationship. I think it's fun too because so I was a German professor so in a way this you know her mother is almost I feel like I was putting myself in the situation of well how would I one feel to grow up in that situation that I knew very well as a professor but what would it be like to raise a child in this kind of um, setting how does from our lit growing up on a college campus, but then still an outsider, right? Because she's the daughter of a professor. She didn't attend UGA. She attended Georgia State, which is in Atlanta. So she's never quite within the university itself, but she knows it really well. So she has this well-informed outsider's perspective that allows her to be critical in ways that certainly people like her mother would be from within, but maybe can't be because there's there's different um, political dimensions to, to speaking your mind if you're a professor at a university versus if you're the daughter of a professor at the university. And then, of course, this, this helps inform as Marlet's going through the investigation, she knows a little bit more about the, the classroom dynamics, the dynamics between um, students and their professors, and then um, some of the the misdeeds that might happen in or outside mm. the classroom. Um, but she also grows up in a college town. Athens, the university, mm -hmm. plays a huge role in the life of the town. 
And there is a feeling, I lived there for six years, and there's both as a student and then also as an instructor teaching there. And there is a feeling when the students leave, that town changes. It just yeah. has a different, yeah. you kind of have this sigh of relief because 30,000 people have just left the, the city. And so she knows what that feels like, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Even, even just for breaks. And I, I used to work on campus during breaks and it's just a different, yeah. it's a whole different feel yeah. to, to be there. It's eerie, but also exciting. There's, there's a whole bunch of things you could be feeling and experiencing in that moment. But yeah, I, I love her informed outsiders perspective. Mm, yeah. That's very, so you've touched again on Greek life, which we're definitely going to talk about. And it's, this is one of those polarizing topics that has people like firmly planted in the, I love it, rah, rah, rah. And then other people thinking, you know, the whole system is completely corrupt and corrosive and evil. Marlet definitely leans towards the evil side, I think. Uh, I want to read a little bit from page 36. Um, when she's talking about one of her coworkers, she says, he's I feel like he's drunk the Kool-Aid. And whenever we have this argument, basically every other fall weekend when a girl comes into the front lobby requesting a rape kit, I chant no means yes, yes means anal under my breath so I can watch his face blanch and get him to shut up. None of them share my aversion and I have a sudden longing for my mother's mind for statistics and her confident voice daring anyone to interrupt. One in five, she'd say. That's how many college women will be assaulted before they graduate. 74%, that's how many more likely women in sororities are to be raped. And 300% men in fraternities are three times more likely to commit rape. And at least one, at least one student will die this year in a hazing-related incident. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and just the way, I know I'm not going to insult you by saying the basics of show, don't tell, but you're just you have such authority over the the figures and it's that professor's daughter like she's a little bit of a smart ass but she's got the numbers and she knows she's heard this this isn't just someone you know thinking they can pull statistics off the top of their head this is something she's heard so many times and i believe her and i believe the context for all of this and i was just fascinated throughout your treatment with greek life and i wondered what you wanted to explore with this brotherhood and what it means to be inside of Greek life, outside of Greek life. And also, the brotherhood doesn't go away when you graduate. And where does it lead to? And what are the repercussions there? So I wanted to know what you want what you were hoping to explore. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I want, (laughs) uh, before I answer your question, I want to um, talk about that idea of brotherhood, because that was one of the earlier titles of the the resemblance was okay. going to be the brotherhood. That was kind of the, the second title, something that we talked about because it feels like, of course, there's this brotherhood within the fraternity, but there's also the brotherhood within the police force that Marlit is trying to navigate. And then you're right. There's that brotherhood that continues as these men who are very well connected through these fraternities then move into the larger world and become CEOs or senators. Yeah. Or I think it's something like 40% of our U.S. presidents were members of fraternities, and it's, wow. it's pretty similar to the Senate. So you're talking about a really powerful body of, of men, because this, this is focusing primarily on fraternities, 
who I think the National Greek Organizations own something like $3 billion worth of real estate across 800 different university campuses. So it is, it's an incredibly powerful institution and well connected institution of, of men that we're, that we're talking about here. And then for Marlit, that she's trying to navigate, of course, within, within this university system, but then with the knowledge that, um, some of these behaviors might repeat themselves um, mm. when they go out into the world. Uh, so for me, my my connection to Greek life, I wasn't in a sorority. My mom was actually, she was a KD at Georgia. So uh, okay. she was at Georgia before me. She was mm-hmm. a KD. And for her, for example, she will say she, it was absolutely necessary. She wouldn't have had as many friends. She was very, it's impossible for me to believe this now because she will introduce herself <laughs> to, and talk to just about anyone. But at the time she was really shy and this is how she, she found her community on a college campus. And I think that's why it, it's so polarizing because a lot of people do have that experience. They, they find their, their sisters, their brothers, they find a supportive community in a university setting where otherwise they'd feel completely isolated and alienated. And, and that is something that we're seeing, um, on college campuses, right. As we're Mm -hmm. seeing the mental, the increase in mental health crises and that students really are searching for community, don't always find it. And Greek life can offer that. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, uh, we do know, so all of those statistics, um, those come from different articles that have been published in the the past few years. Um, And then a lot of the incidents mentioned in the novel, those are pulled directly from the headlines. And so for me, I I had um, heard Margaret Atwood talk about The Handmaid's Tale and writing The Mm -hmm. Handmaid's Tale. And she had this rule for herself that she said, whatever she... Whatever she put in that story had to have happened at some somewhere, some place of time, wow. lest she be accused of making it all up, you know, <laughs> um, and you know what that would say about her. And so I tried to apply that that same rule to the resemblance and that all of these really horrific and troubling incidences had to have some inspiration or were again directly pulled from the headlines like the yes means yes, no means yeah. anal, the um, rape bait email, all of those were things that that had happened in the past few years. And then that number um, that it's been, um, there's a professor who, who keeps track of these fraternity-related deaths, and it has been, I think he's been keeping track for the past 30 years. It might be even longer, about one, one man has lost his life every year. And when I was finishing this novel, it was in 2019. And there were, I think, five deaths, I think that year, that were somehow linked to fraternity related incidents. It's really, it's really sad and tragic. And uh, the culture needs to to change. And so I was writing both as someone who as a student, of course, attended fraternity parties. I have a lot of friends who were in fraternities and sororities. Also as a student who lived next to a fraternity house while I was wow. uh, <laughs> working on my PhD, but then also um, as a professor who has real concern, mm-hmm. has taught lovely students who are involved uh, in Greek life, but also has real concern about what's going on, you know, uh, when when these students are away from home for the first time and right. and it's out of sight of the classroom, but it's still happening on on the college campus or 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 just off the college campus, right? Yeah, and they've 
been given power. It's not just independence. It's it's a new power and a power over one another. You might think, oh, well, what power do they really have there? But they have power over one another, yeah. great power. And I love that you have these different perspectives as a student, as a graduate student, and as a professor. And that must have deepened your, yeah. does, do you think that gave you more perspective, a more well-rounded perspective of what was going on or just just d- deepened your sadness and confusion over what's going on here i think i think teaching well and just as you as you get older right and you look back on your college years because it's not it's not as if i was perfect either right and you look right. back on it's some of the things just, that you right. did right and you think well i was lucky and yeah. the the fact is some people aren't and i think when you for me teaching that made it more clear and i found myself especially these past few years again with the the mental health crises really going home from my office and worrying about my students mm-hmm. in a way that i think at the beginning especially because i started as a graduate student instructor who's still focused on my own studies and maybe didn't have the capacity or awareness for what what else was going on but um yeah, it really haunted me to think not only just um, that they're, these are students who are away from home for the first time dealing with increasing digital alienation and an awareness mm-hmm. of everything else going on in the world, but then to what might be happening as there are students who, who very much want to belong to a community and then maybe are asked to do things in order to, to belong to that right. community that they shouldn't have mm-hmm. to. That's right. the part yeah. I never liked. Um, yeah. It's so funny yeah. because... Corinne and I went to the same college, so um, I, I can say neither one of us went to a, a college with a Greek life. And I remember even when I was applying to colleges that I refused to apply. This is like a 17-year-old Kate had principles, and <laughs> I don't know where they came from. My two older brothers were in fraternities, so maybe it was to rebel against them. But but it was this idea that you're talking about. There was something that bothered me about the idea that your social life and your acceptance and your community and what you what you'd be a part of there could be i don't know determined by these little group these houses these little groups mm-hmm. of people and so i'm not i'd like to say it was some feminist notion then or, or other principles it was more just like it just doesn't seem right like i want to and i don't want to if i don't get in or i can't be part of that how will that affect my experience so i just went well i'm just going to apply to places that just don't have them because just take yeah. it off the table so that that element isn't there because what if I get there and I don't want to be in one but then does that mean you won't be part of something out. so yeah. right. I think but I think this is why it's so rich for all these things we're talking about make it so rich for fiction there's just so many different things to explore and and the complexity which you've you've touched on all the issues yeah, I think for me, and you touched on this too, the power dynamics are really yeah. interesting to me because I'm like you where I don't, I just can't imagine being in a situation where someone says, okay, you're going to drink an obsessive amount, then you're going to throw up on each other, and then you're going to eat each other. You know, I, oh, I just, yes. I can't. And then you can ever. belong. <laughs> then you can, then we'll get I, I don't think I want to belong to a group that no. asked me to do that, but but you know, there there is a, of course a lot of drinking involved, and and everyone else is doing it. And I think that it, I could see how you could get um, sucked up into that oh, mindset. Absolutely. But for me, there is also something that just I have a knee jerk reaction to that to that yeah. thought. Yeah. 
So I also want to talk about the setting. Um, so you mentioned it's like dark academia and, and we love things set in a college campus. But I do feel like a lot of things are set in these typical New England schools. And that's what you usually see, which is our experience, actually, Corinne and I. Um, but the resemblance is set in a large southern university, University of Georgia, which is telling Corinne, my nephew's a freshman there. So, uh, yes, a bulldog. So um, I wanted to hear about about that, about your decision to, to place it there and how that uh, shaped the story. Yeah, I'm, and I'm glad that you, you brought this up because I, I have thought a lot about this because I also love reading books in this genre, and and I agree. They also they often seem to be set in the Northeast or at Oxford or Cambridge or you know some some setting that is very very different than a big Southern SEC school. Yeah. I don't talk really about football at all in the but you know the yeah. these, oh yeah it's a know, big these schools where that's a part of just very much a part of the culture. culture and that's huge you know where you have 30 to 40,000 students in a lot of ways what happens the the mystery the central mystery of the resemblance couldn't happen at a small so I, I right. taught at smaller liberal arts universities and colleges I taught at Elon University and Randolph-Macon mm-hmm. College with where what happens in the realism list just could not happen. It was too small. You knew everyone. You knew all of your students. So in a way, I feel like this could only really happen at a big university. Mm-hmm. And then it was nice to set it in the South because there are certain, I think, um, Southern cultural elements that come into play, mm-hmm. both in, in the way Marlitt has to navigate the, the police force as a woman, but then her partner, Teddy, who is a black man has to navigate now these traditionally white fraternities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, there's to a certain extent, Marlitt's, I think sometimes willful ignorance and what he's going through as their partner together. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yes. That I was thinking about that. Well, I want to come back to it because I want to come to, I want to talk about the title, the resemblance. You said it was originally maybe going to be the brotherhood, but and I really want to know because I think I'm so clever, but I might just be <laughs> right. No, I just think that the resemblance has several meanings in this. And we obviously won't talk about the more literal one um, that would be a spoiler, but there's a theme of recognizing something, the past trauma in someone else or even in yourself. And then you see it in someone else's fact pattern and you're not sure, is this mine? Is this theirs? And I'd like to read, again, no spoilers, just a little bit about what Marlitt is seeing when she says, um, this confrontation with death has wounded has wounded them, a tiny bruise on their souls. Maybe life isn't a fact, but rather something that can be snatched away at any moment. But then laughter erupts from one of the groups, and I wonder if I'm only projecting these thoughts of mortality onto their line-free faces. So, I, I mean, and I thought that was like what you're, we're always looking at to other people for commonality and for relatability, but then what are we projecting on them? What is the resemblance? What is real? And so I wanted to talk about the title and why you decided to go with that, because the Brotherhood would have obviously worked very well. Yeah, I, well, and I didn't mention there was an earlier title, the one that I had saved the right. book on, you know, in my laptop before right. it was um, before it was picked up. So the the first title was Grotesque Animals, 
Mm. which I really loved. And it's a reference to an Of Montreal song. And Of Montreal is an Athens band. And they have a song called The Past is a Grotesque Animal. And there's actually still a reference to that that line very early, uh, early in the novel. But I think from my editor, he felt like it sounded like a fantasy young adult novel yeah. or something. <laughs> it just wasn't very clear what, what that was, um, which I think is a fair, fair point. And so then, yes, we thought about the brotherhood because there are of course as we talked earlier these um, different forms of the brotherhood but then the resemblance I think allowed it to be a little bit broader so that it could incorporate what you were talking about these multiple ways that we think we know what an institution is or we think we know who each other are but often they just resemble and aren't Mm -hmm. exactly you know aren't exactly what and Marlette really struggles with this when it comes to justice Right. She thinks she knows what justice is. She thinks that she's working in service of justice. But really what she finds is it's it's more of a resemblance of, of justice mm-hmm. and not the real thing. And she's not even sure if the real thing exists or if she says something or if it's just sounds good in theory mm-hmm. or doesn't work in practice or something like that. And so yeah. I think the resemblance allows her for multiple interpretations in a way that and I think the brotherhood might have not given away too much, but it would have really cast it as about Greek life when it's about a little bit more. Yes, that's right. I think you've given us an idea for a new question. I think we should always ask authors what this novel was saved in their computer ads. Yes, that's a great one. Because I'm loving grotesque Yes, I love this. I mean... Because that is so, even, I mean, yes, hearing what your editor, what you guys bandied about, but what you and you alone were sitting in front of your laptop, what you called it. I love that. Well, and that song too, just to to say one more thing about that earlier title. um, So you might have to go listen to this. It's Of Montreal, The Past is a Grotesque Animal. And actually, Of Montreal, that was the last band I saw before everything closed down for COVID. Um, Just another another tidbit. Um, I love them. And and there's a line where I use, so Kevin Barnes is the lead singer, and I use his last name as an adjective, and I was really just proud of that, that I got to, you know, when caught that I had made up this, I said Barnesian grotesque animal, it's really uh, early in the in the book. Um, but that song, I listen. there's a scene in the novel that takes place in a basement, and um, I listened to that song on repeat while I was writing that scene. Oh. I just, I just had, and I just sat there, and it was one of those satisfying moments you don't always get as, as a writer, yeah. where you sit down and you do write a scene in one go. Just you know, you mm-hmm. you have that moment of flow or whatever. But that was the background music I was writing. Oh, to, so. okay, I have to listen to now that. We now we definitely have to. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to talk about sort of how you how you got here. I mean, I, I know with your background in academia, you're certainly no stranger to publication, but fiction is certainly very different. Um, so we'd love to hear about your path um, from academia to now your debut novel. You know, any yeah. highlights, stories? We love these these stories. So I can say that this novel is actually the seventh work of fiction that I have finished. It is the first to be published. <gasps> I so love I, this already. That I think I had so to write happy. <laughs> I had to write a lot of 
novels that just didn't work for whatever reason and mm-hmm. learn through that process in order to get to this one, which when I finished, I, I did have a really good feeling. I thought this, this could be the one. And then when I, when I queried, I heard an immediate response, um, from, from the woman who's now my agent. And so after, so those other six novels, some of them I queried, some of them, I think I knew after finishing and doing a few revisions that they didn't work, but inevitably I heard no's for all of those in some way, way, shape or form. And then, so to hear a yes for this Mm. was really satisfying. And this was also the first, all the other novels, they were more literary fiction. And so I wrote this as a mystery. And for whatever reason, that just really having that, the rules of genre really helped me and having the parameters of a, a mystery and this, um, crime to solve, I think helped direct me in a way that maybe I was missing that direction when I was working on the the other novels. Mm. Oh, I love that story. We just love, uh, well, first of all, I have a few in the drawer as well. I haven't been keeping count very well, but I know when I have my, it's my debut publication day, I will certainly have the countdown to tell everybody the same thing. And it's a tough, you know, you hear it all the time. It's a tough market. It's a tough industry, but it's just always reassuring because you're always on the verge of giving up and thinking this, well, this clearly isn't for me. I've Mm -hmm. tried. I didn't give up right out of the gate. I tried with some real fortitude and it's just not going to happen. But I don't know. I I love, I love when you keep going and there's the success story at the end. So we appreciate you sharing that. Of course. So I want to talk a little bit about your writing process because now Will you now continue to write in this with the genre constraints and what is your process like and has it changed over those or now that you're published, are you working closely with an editor and your agent? Um, I'd just love to hear anything about your process that you want to share. So I can say there will be a second book with Marlit and some (gasps) recurring characters, hopefully this time next year. Um, wow. Yeah. So I okay. actually, um, I, I had a two book deal, uh, for this, which was great because I had actually written the first drafts of two books with Marlette. So I was very, I was nervous to go in, um, with, with two books, but then very, very relieved that, um, my editor wanted both, wanted them both. um, which was really great. As far as my writing process goes, I think in some ways, the discipline from, from being a professor, from writing articles and scholarly books, that was useful to, to just mm-hmm. know you have to sit down, you have to write, you have to yeah. put the time in, you have to make that time. That was really helpful. What I wish I would do and am not very good at doing that mm-hmm. I would do in a scholarly project is I wish I would outline more because normally what happens is mm-hmm. I get really excited about an idea I start writing, I have 60 or 70,000 words, and I think, what am I looking at here? And then I have to go back and make an outline, and it's so probably not the fastest or the best or the smartest way to work, but unfortunately, the second book I was a little bit better, but I don't know. I I guess in the beginning, the outline maybe feels restrictive, even though it would be helpful, and then I kind of have to write, see what's there, do the outline, and then move things around so you write yourself into the story. You yeah. just like let it come out. The writer's subconscious. We talk about that a yes. lot on here. 
Yeah, another thing I was going to say that we talk about a lot to make you feel better is I just can't tell you how many authors say to us, this is my process. It's so stupid. It's It's so inefficient. I would not recommend anybody do this, but I don't know how to do it any other way. And these are people who have now written five, ten novels. Dozens, yes. Yeah, it just just seems to me that people, however much they dislike their process, it's their process and you should probably just roll with it. Yeah, I do so many things that I just think this is not the, so I I like to edit readings. I'll send the file to me as a Kindle book so that Mm -hmm. I can read it in Kindle form, but then I write notes. So I'm not editing in the Word document. I write kind of notes to myself to go back and change. And then it's this whole back and forth. I do a lot of when at the beginning of a project, I like to write in my phone. It takes the pressure off. If I sit down at the computer it feels like work, but if I'm sitting outside kind of reading, thinking, and then I can take notes for I, some reason. Yeah. yeah I do that too. I do a lot of writing you, of anything or even thoughts, journaling, everything into my phone. I either it, talk it. Do you think it, it's a pressure thing yeah. or do you, yeah. Yeah. Or I, I talk it into it so then it's faster. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or because if my thumbs start getting tired, um, I also, as Corinne knows, I walk a ton and my brain starts to work when I walk. And so then I am the person walking down the street. I have to like this. Like I live in suburbia yeah. with like no one around. So it's okay. I don't try this in the streets of New York City or whatever. But Well, remember Stephen yeah. King was hit while walking, you know, uh, in his back one. <laughs> it's going to be me. I swear. Because I am like, la, la, like lost in writing or thinking. And I got to put it down in my phone. I know. So I And I, I do the Kindle you. thing too. Because... Mm-hmm. I'm always struggling with how to get fresh eyes on something you've worked on, right? So tricking yourself into reading it on the Kindle, it feels like something else and not the document you've stared at for, Mm -hmm. you know, however long it's taken you to get it down. So I love that. But fresh eyes, that's the biggest challenge for me for revision to not just gloss over it because I've read it a million times. Right. Of course. Yeah. And and then you're always amazed at how there's still a typo and you've oh my gosh (laughs) through the manuscript so many times. One, one trick. And again, I think this comes probably just from the kind of academic research that I I do to have fresh eyes is I try to be working on two projects at once. Mm. And that's what I would do is, you know, with how long it would take to publish an article, you'd, you'd start one, send it off to an editor. You'd be waiting on their notes but if you waited till you got them back, it would be a long time before you start a new one. So go back and forth between those. And I, I started to do that with, with the books too. So to, to start a book, get it to where I can, you know, set it aside, start a new one, get really immersed in that. And then I can go back to yeah, the one I was working before with fresh yeah. eyes. That makes and sense. again, I don't know, because then sometimes you forget what you're thinking yeah. <laughs> when you were first working on that first right. book, which is good for fresh eyes, bad maybe if you don't have a great outline to, to draw from. <laughs> Funny. Yes. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, so are we, are we at my yes. favorite question? Karen? Yes, we are. Okay. I know you're like, really? What about all these other questions? Um, no, I'm ready. Um, I'm ready. so we I'm have so a little <laughs> obsession here with astrology and that's because of a lot of things, but we use it cause we are real control freaks here, me and Corinne. 
and yes, we have, as we like to say, this white knuckle grip on life. And we we try to use astrology as a way of thinking that there's something bigger at play and also as a starting point to sort of understand people. Not that everybody is exactly the characteristics of this sign, though lots of times they are. Um, <laughs> but, you know, try to understand it. And we, we sometimes use it to understand characters. So we like to ask all our authors, what's your sign and do you relate? And we could not internet snoop for you. Sometimes oh, we... Because sometimes on Instagram... Or even if they're, you know, if they're a more established author from published a ton of books, they might even have a Wikipedia page. We uh-huh. have no idea. So I know. before you answer, sometimes no I like guess. to have Corinne no guess. guess. You don't no. have a guess. Okay. Because no. Corinne's no. better at guessing, but I'm, we're just going to drum roll here. Drum roll. Okay. Go ahead. What okay. is it? So February 28th is my birthday. <gasps> that's my son's birthday. Is it really? Was he yes. born on a leap year? Because that's always the next question people ask. I was not, but... Mm-hmm. It, he wasn't either. And they always say, good thing it wasn't one day later. I'm like, one day later was March 1st. Right. So exactly. it would have been fine. Exactly. You have to ask first if it's right. a leap year. Right. But that's yes. so funny. Uh, yes. Um, so yeah, so, I, I, so I've listened to, to this podcast before and I had a feeling you were going to ask about this. And I will say, I don't know... I know I'm a Pisces. Yes. I know Pisces tend to be um, creative. creative my, my husband was also, uh, he passed away last year, but he was also a Pisces. And so we were both just very creative, head in the sky kind of household. Yes. Um, so I know that I fit in that way. I don't know enough to say anything else about, about that star sign. So That's enough. So you do obviously relate to creative, dreamy, romantic emotional, spiritual. And I will say this too, interesting that you mentioned your husband because my son is a Pisces and my daughter is a Pisces, both. And they are not the same. It doesn't always manifest the same way. Right, right. But it sounds like, yeah, I mean, dreamy, head in the clouds, intuitive. Do you find like that's very Pisces? I think so. I would like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'll say that. We we, uh, interviewed uh, Jillian McAllister and I, we said all of these same things because she's a Pisces. And she was like, that person sounds lovely. I'm like, that sounds like you. What <laughs> and I, same, that same here. That does happen a lot. We've had a lot of Pisces lately. They're yeah. water signs. So yeah. you guys, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, and the, that's, that's good. I have no I think I the have dreaming no works for writers, right? That, yes. that well, you that's do the have thing. your head in the clouds and are thinking not about... I mean, I can't tell you how clumsy I am because I'm never paying attention to what I'm doing. And I think that's probably a result of that. Part of it. Yeah. It's not just in some people are and some people aren't. It's not about um, you're a professor. You can't be flighty and like scatterbrained. But the, the deep imagination and the ability to really go places with your imagination. And Marissa Meyer, who her book is also out today, her next one, she is born on my daughter's birthday, which is so interesting. But um, she said as a young child, she just would go there. It was like, you know, something bad. She'd see something on the news and it was like, death and destruction and all of these terrible deeply things feeling and, deeply feeling. yeah my daughter's the same yeah, yeah. i mean i yeah. think that's yes and uh, seems like something a writer head in the clouds feeling but yeah. not all i mean it's, it's no not all it's no not at all emotions um usually well, emotional all right well we'll stop torturing you with our astrology yeah. but so we'd like to end with what you are loving right now anything that's top of mind a show you've watched a book you've read you are so generous and frankly Mm -hmm. just really good at 
recommending all of your dark academia peers. And I've loved following you on Instagram and watching you talk about all of them. And, and which I've read so many of them, I just happen to love the genre as well. Mm -hmm. So and I'm like, Oh, she's really she's got that she's got that right. Um, And the differences between them, because they're not, even though it's one genre, they feel many of them feel very different. So anything top of mind you want to share, we'd love to hear more. Well, that's a perfect lead into what I've been reading, which is I, so I had done on, on Instagram, I had done a you know 25 campus novel countdown leading up to the publication of my book, which was great. I had read about half of them and then I, I had to go and, and read more to make sure I, I was including, you know, books that I thought should be included. But then there were all these other great titles that came out in the dark academia genre within the last few weeks. And so I just recently, um, finished Katie Hayes, the cloisters, mm, okay. um, that said, so it's a, a woman who, uh, accepts this internship, what she thinks is going to be at the Met. And then she ends up at this kind of Gothic museum attached to it and investigating the secretive world of tarot cards and collectors. <gasps> and it's, Sorry. it's really incredible. So I recommend that. And then a few weeks, so I think that came out this week. And then a few weeks ago, Joanna Margaret's The Bequest um, was published, and that's another Dark Academia title. And I just started that, so I can't summarize it um, great. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm just fully, I'm, this time of year, too, I just want to yes. read. Oh, your cover is so gorgeous. It's and perfect. I love, yes, like it's perfect for this time of the year. And I just wanted to fully, ste- I want to step inside that book okay. cover. It's so yeah. good. Yeah. And I think that's what the genre allows you to do for all of those people who who feel nostalgic for mm-hmm. that that time in their their lives um my editor jokingly said that he thinks um one reason that people were really loving this genre now is there's a whole generation of people who grew up wanting to go to hogwarts right where you really oh, have that yes. that beautiful setting the respected professors you know the different camaraderie that you find in the student body and that's the dark academia even if there's sinister undertones just like harry potter um that allows us to visit that world or revisit that world oh, oh gosh. I love that's that. a younger generation than us Karen. we yes. we, we want to revisit it for lots of reasons, but I wouldn't have thought Hogwarts. I think like dead poet society and my, I date myself there. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Although my daughter, she has just realized that pretty much every second grader gets obsessed. She's now older and she's like, wait, everybody loves Harry Potter. I'm like, ew, it's so Harry Potter. I'm like, it was old when you saw it too. It's just like every, everyone discovers it at their own time. And then you, Mm -hmm. you think you're the only one. And then you realize this has been happening before you and it's going to happen after you. For me, that was the Chronicles of Narnia. Like when I was that age, that was what I think that fantasy. Yeah. Wanting, wanting that secret world behind my closet. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. The Resemblance is out now. It's a great book. Everyone should go pick it up. And thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks yes, so much for having me. Congratulations on yes. your on your publication day. And thank you. Nice. Yeah. Thank y'all. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop.
Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.